Support for this program is provided by Chevron, the human energy company. This is Politico Energy. I'm Catherine Morehouse. This weekend, international climate negotiators finally reached a tentative agreement on how to set up a fund that would help developing nations recover and rebuild from the impacts of climate change. The talks were seen as the final opportunity to smooth out fundamental disagreements between developed countries and developing countries. So it's a win that negotiations progressed. But there's a big problem. No one's really happy with the proposed agreement. And that could be an ominous sign as the United Nations Climate Change Conference approaches at the end of the month. So today, we check in with Sarah Schoenhart from Politico's e News on the details of this compromise, why many countries are still dissatisfied, and what it means for the upcoming UN climate talks. It's Tuesday, November 7th. So this was a final meeting of a committee set up by governments under the United Nations to help lay a framework for a climate fund aimed at helping vulnerable countries recover from climate-related extremes. So that's everything from severe storms to drought to displacement caused by sea level rise. Those recommendations will now go for further consideration at upcoming climate talks in the United Arab Emirates. And negotiators went into the weekend meeting with several unresolved issues to tackle and some pretty deep divisions over questions like where the fund should be set up, where the money for it would come from, and which countries would be eligible to receive it. So the main outcomes were that the World Bank would host the fund on an interim four-year basis. This was a compromise between the position of developed countries, which had argued that folding the fund into the World Bank would allow it to be set up and start operating really quickly. Developing countries were more worried that the bank and its developed country shareholders would have too much control over the fund's operations under that setup. So this was a a compromise agreement. The final outcome also urges developed countries to support developing ones and take the lead on providing financial resources, but it's clear those contributions are voluntary rather than obligatory, as some developing countries had wanted. And of course, it means there's no guaranteed infusion of money into the fund immediately. The outcome also allows the fund to receive money from a wide variety of sources beyond governments including the private sector and so-called innovative sources, which could potentially be things like voluntary carbon markets. That's something developed countries had pushed for, knowing that government funding alone wouldn't be enough to reach the scale needed for this type of fund. Got it. But despite these compromises, you're also reporting that this agreement has left almost every country dissatisfied, including the United States. Could you break down why no one was happy here? These were high-stakes talks where countries were really divided and wanted to fight for positions that were often quite far apart. In the end, all parties felt they had made compromises and no one got everything they wanted. So for most countries, developed and developing, I think there was a sense that this was a challenging but necessary compromise and They were under a lot of pressure to deliver, including from the presidency of this year's climate talks. 
One negotiator told me that if they hadn't produced a recommended framework for the fund, it would have cast a long shadow over COP28. But the negotiations really came down to the wire. This was an extra negotiating session that they hadn't scheduled for. And so the text was really presented as take it or leave it, meaning no more changes could be made. Countries agreed with some voicing reservations or saying they'd continue to advocate for changes in whatever ways they could. But when the U.S. voiced an objection, even after the meeting had closed, I think it created this feeling that it was acting in bad faith. Interesting. And you're also reporting that some climate activists are critical of this weekend's outcome. What are you hearing from that perspective? Yeah, much of the activist community talks about the fund as meeting a need for climate justice. Dozens of U.S. groups had been pressuring the Biden administration to ease up on its demands that the World Bank host the fund and acknowledge its historical responsibility for the harms that its pollution has caused. So there are concerns that developed countries, the U.S. in particular, tried to shape the fund too much to its needs rather than the needs of the developing countries the fund is meant to serve, and also that it doesn't really guarantee adequate money for the fund. Okay, and we know that this agreement comes ahead of COP28, which is the UN climate talks that begin at the end of this month. What does this deal mean for those talks? It's not totally clear. It could foreshadow divisions that will arise again at COP28, not just around this this issue of loss and damage, but in other parts of the negotiations. There are questions about whether countries will try and reopen issues around the fund that they didn't agree with and what the U.S., which objected to a part of the text at the last minute, might do. A bigger issue that loomed over this negotiation but wasn't resolved is an effort by the U.S. to get rid of traditional definitions of developed and developing in its attempt to widen the number of countries that would contribute to a fund. This agreement invites developed countries to take the lead on providing finance, but the U.S. wants to widen that more narrow classification to include emerging economies such as the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and China, and that remains a live debate. Also, the leaders of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the North American Electric Reliability Corporation are warning against closing a liquefied natural gas terminal in New England. FERC Chair Willie Phillips and NERC CEO Jim Robb issued a joint statement Monday arguing that retiring the Everett Marine Terminal in 2024 could impact the region's ability to keep the lights on and heat flowing through winter. For years now, New England has been concerned about its ability to keep the grid stable under extreme cold weather conditions, especially given its heavy reliance on natural gas during the winter season. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our free newsletter at politico.com power switch and subscribe to Politico Pro to read our morning energy newsletter. Some of the music in today's show is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And that's our show. I'm Catherine Morehouse, and we'll see you back tomorrow. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Chevron is working to responsibly meet rising energy demand across their U.S. operations, like at their Gulf of Mexico facilities which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. 
Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand.